Greta, come on up here. Greta McGee uh, is a friend of mine, and uh, when she took this class called The Journey, and she wrote her narrative, uh, and then a few weeks ago I came to Greta and I said, Greta, we would like you to share this in front of the whole congregation, and she said, I knew God was going to ask me to do that. Not that I'm God, but like <laughs> on his behalf, I was asking her to do that. And she said, I had to determine that the answer is yes. And so she's here, not because she wants to be, but because she feels like it's an obedience to Christ. And uh, God has given her quite a story. And so my, I would urge you, this is a story with a, a lot in it. You know, when you get older, you have a longer story. Uh, there's a lot in the story. And there's great depths of joy and great depths of uh, loss and tragedy. And so I would encourage you to listen closely. Okay? Okay. I'm proud of you, Greta. Okay. Thanks. Good morning. If God brings you to it, he will bring you through it. This is stitched on a pillow resting on my bed, and I read it daily. It's my motto and should be inscribed on my headstone. My name is Greta Faye Willems Gabrielson McGee. I was born to Jake and Francis Willems, April 22, 1946, to parents with a German heritage. <clears throat> All of their ancestors came from Ostfriesland in northwestern Germany near the Netherlands. I grew up on a farm owned by my parents a few miles south of Ackley, Iowa. Most of my extended family and friends also lived in farming communities. My three brothers were six and four years older and four years younger than me. Thus, I grew up loving sports but hating conflict. We all helped with with the farming operation. I was a good girl and taught the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. We regularly attended Sunday school and church at East Friesland Presbyterian Church, a half mile from our home. It was a traditional conservative congregation of other farming families. I remember sitting on one side of the church with my younger brother and mother, while my dad and two older brothers sat on the other side, a German tradition. I was responsible and followed my parents' rules. I attended catechism classes through junior high, memorizing scripture, and then joining the church. I accepted Christ into my life and became a steadfast believer. We prayed together before meals and at bedtime, but did not spend a lot of time reading the Bible together at home. Although quiet and reserved, my father was the disciplinarian. Punishments were often directed at my brothers, but seldom at me. There was little hugging or expressions of love, but my mother was more loving and tender-hearted. Mom, Ma, as I called her, and I had a strong bond, sharing responsibilities and conversations regularly. I attended country school a half mile from our home through second grade, having one other classmate in my grade. My love of learning and reading began there as I listened to the teacher instruct all the older students through eighth grade. Transitioning to third grade in town was easy since I had already learned much of what was being taught. I was very studious throughout high school and participated in student government 
as a student council leader who was trustworthy and dependable and a member of the National Honor Society. I loved music, owning many rock and roll 45s, but had little singing talent. We didn't have girls' competitive sports until after I graduated. I was socially introverted and did not date, but enjoyed many fun times with girlfriends. After graduating in 1964 with a class of 66, I worked summer jobs away from the farm as a nanny in a Chicago suburb living with a Jewish family, at a girls' camp in Colorado, and at a resort in Michigan. I enjoyed traveling to and living in new environments. I could succeed independently, yet still lean on God when things got scary. I earned an Associate of Arts degree from Ellsworth Community College and then transferred to SCI, State College of Iowa, which became UNI my senior year. I completed my teaching degree in majoring in elementary education. I enjoyed teaching kids and loved all the subjects. I dated some, but always got nervous and broke off the relationship when I felt it was getting serious. My studies came first. After graduating, my best friend and I moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, to teach in the suburb of Edina, a very wealthy, progressive school district. I had a fantastic first-year teaching experience, but with my friend getting married and my dislike of the brutal Minnesota winter, I moved back to Iowa. God led me to Cedar Rapids, where I again taught fifth graders. Our building was one of the first in the district to embrace team teaching, so I no longer had my own classroom. The fall of 1969, I met Kent Gabrielson, who had just graduated from the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy and was assigned to District 11 as a road trooper and DL examiner. He and his roommate, C.J. Jones, an associate pastor at the church I attended, also lived in my apartment complex. Our connection was immediate and mutual. We were engaged in January and married in June of 1970. I trusted him respected his career choice, and thrived in his outgoing, expressive, loving personality. The Lord knew what I needed in a spouse. After five years of marriage and serious praying for guidance, we began seeking help for infertility issues and exploring the adoption process. On our seventh anniversary, we received a call from the adoption agency that we could pick up our baby girl the next day. God was again leading me through another major life event. I was especially reassured when we discovered our new daughter, who was four months old, had been in foster care since birth with a family just across the street from where I was teaching, and their son was one of my students. I took two years' unpaid leave of absence with a guarantee of a job if I returned. I loved being a full-time mom and agonized over the decision to return to the classroom. Financially, we could live on one salary, but wouldn't be able to save anything like we did the previous seven years. I did go back to a new building, new staff, and new grade level, sixth graders. Unexpectedly, by January, I was pregnant for the first and only time. With a baby due in September, I applied for and received another leave. I was thrilled to be home that fall with two precious daughters, 
As a trooper, Kent's shifts rotated from days to nights every two weeks, with a few midnights thrown in annually. It was a blessing that I could be at home and not have to hire child care. Just as I was beginning to think about the next school year, Kent received a promotion to sergeant and, we, and began working as assistant commander in Cedar Falls. We moved in April of 82, and my teaching career was put on hold indefinitely. We loved our new neighborhood and quickly discovered Orchard Hill Reformed Church a couple blocks away. The Bakers had arrived a year earlier. We loved Pastor Ed's preaching style and leadership. I continued to grow in my faith, taking every Bible study Sally taught. She was and is the best Bible teacher I've had. I have many Orchard Hill friendships of 30-plus years. The girls thrived, and I began volunteering at their school as well as at Orchard. By the time Gretchen was in seventh grade and Ingrid a third grader, I was getting restless. Instead of searching for a full-time teaching position, I began working part-time as a paraprofessional, assisting seventh through ninth graders with behavior issues at Pete Junior High. It was the fall of 89. Life was good. Monday, April 9, 1990, of Holy Week, Kent hugged me goodbye and drove off to Des Moines for in-service training and an annual physical. He passed the physical in the morning and participated in the required three-mile walk that afternoon. Later that evening, I received a call from his captain, Kent had suffered a massive coronary earlier that evening while eating dinner at the ground round with his friend, CJ. He was in intensive care at a hospital, and they planned to fly me there as soon as the fog lifted here. I needed to find a place for the girls and pack a bag. I immediately called friend and neighbor Joan Keller Trebon. She rushed right over. As I finished packing, the doorbell rang. The captain and patrol chaplain were at the door, and I knew it was too late. He didn't make it. Those are the words Kent told CJ at the meal. He'd said his legs felt weird as they walked into the restaurant. Then as they sat across from each other, he looked over CJ's shoulder as if looking up to greet a friend and said those exact words, I don't think I'm going to make it, and collapsed. CPR was immediately administered, and he was rushed to the hospital. The death certificate read, Death Due to Acute Arrhythmia. The girls, Joan and I, screamed, hugged, and cried as we heard the captain's words. Such a sudden, unexpected death at age 43 was unbearable. Family, friends, and community were all in disbelief. I was in shock for several days. Yet my girls needed me to be strong. Only prayers and God's unfailing love saw us through. I asked over and over, why, why? The intense grieving and pain lasted a long time. Looking back now, 26 years later, I am reminded how God held me up and kept me stable. A few weeks earlier, we had been advised that we needed more life insurance on Kent than what the state provided And only six days before his death, we finalized that application. I distinctly remember sitting in the car later saying to him, I think you are going to die young. 
never in a million years thinking it was to happen in less than a week. That decision saved us from financial hardship. We could keep our home and I could keep working part-time. Praise the Lord, for he is good. Then in June of the next year, God led me to a grief support group at Nazareth Lutheran Church. I felt comfortable with the caring leader and the mix of ages and gender of the participants. But after a year, it was still difficult to share openly with strangers. Really, Lord, I asked, is this the appropriate time and place to meet someone? Raleigh McGee was also in this group, having recently lost his wife of 30-plus years to cancer. God responded, yes. We had much in common. He had been a teacher, now worked for the state as a hearing officer, dealing with those who had lost their driver's licenses, served in the military, as Kent had, was a Christian, grew up on a farm, and it was his mother-in-law who encouraged him to join this support group. Besides that, she was my neighbor. Kent and I had often visited with her and her husband when we walked around the block. She was a seamstress who helped me with sewing projects, and I had asked her to stay in our home during Kent's funeral because at that time there had been reports of break-ins and robberies while families were gone to loved ones' funerals. Then I discovered Raleigh had attended Kent's funeral. We had never met, but he knew Kent because sometimes he worked at the patrol office. For some reason, he didn't know why, he felt compelled to attend the funeral, arrived late, and sat up in the balcony. The funeral had been moved from Orchard to Nazareth because such a large crowd was expected. Yes, God already knew all those connections. See, this is God at work, not mere coincidences that so many people believe. He was working in our hearts long before we ever met. We helped each other do the hard grief work, started dating that fall, and married the following summer on the spirit of Dubuque with both Pastor Ed and Raleigh's pastor officiating as we floated down the Mississippi River. Earlier, I had written a long list of requirements a new spouse had to meet and thought Raleigh met them all. Except, except one, which my girls thought was reason not to marry. He had four adult children, two married, and two who were getting married in 1992. His age, 13 years older than me, was what really bothered them. I questioned God often over those months and finally turned it all over to him. I trusted his grace would carry me through. He had been faithful to both of us in the past, and he would be again. I firmly felt led by him. Although it took time, they eventually accepted and loved the new extended family and they us. My daughters are now married and mothers, having three children and two children, and Raleigh's children have three each. In fact, I now have a total of 17 grandchildren, and this past year added the first two granddaughters-in-law. Life was good again. Raleigh retired in 1996, and I quit my job a couple years later after the girls graduated from high school. We enjoyed traveling and began delivering Winnebago RVs. We towed a car so we could explore new areas of the country after making the deliveries. We purchased a timeshare 
and began trading it with others and visited nearly all 50 states in 10 years. By 2001, Arizona looked like a great spot to spend winters. We first rented, then bought a park model in a retirement park outside Phoenix. We enjoyed the park activities, made new friends, attended new churches, and explored the entire state. In 2004, the Lord joined us on our next journey. This one was not so much fun. Raleigh began having difficulty finding words and concentrating while reading or watching TV. His primary care physician referred him to his first neurologist, and I began journaling the final chapters of our lives together, writing about his health decline, describing my emotional roller coaster, and the anticipatory grieving I had begun. There were early signs of dementia. We continued our lives pretty normally for the next five years, but changes were taking place, and he began taking dementia medications to slow the progress of the disease. But in the winter of 2009 in Arizona, he was hospitalized for dehydration. At the time, I thought it was a stroke, as from that point on, his illness was more evident to family and friends when we returned home that spring. His legs were getting stiffer, he began shuffling as he walked, and his speech was becoming more difficult to understand. We met with two new neurologists, and after more testing, blood work, MRIs, etc., both gave similar diagnoses of vascular dementia and akinetic rigid Parkinsonism. Definition, Parkinson's disease is a degenerative disorder of the central nervous system that often impairs the patient's motor skills, speech, and other functions. I was optimistic at times because he didn't have Alzheimer's, the most prominent form of dementia. But in reality, they are all horrific. The struggles and pain of watching my hero lose his communication skills, his strong body fail, his mind no longer his to control, were overwhelming. I was advised to do all the driving, give close supervision, get a power of attorney, update our wills, join a support group, and more. We went back to Arizona for two more winters. By 2011, I knew it was time to sell our unit. The warm winters were hard to give up, but I needed my support system closer. Family, friends, and church. Fortunately, the property sold quickly. One less worry for me, and we headed home. His decline continued gradually. Walking became more difficult. We removed the power tools from his shop, put a gate across the steps to the basement with a large stop sign attached, and put up alarms at the doors. I realized how disappointed Raleigh was in selling our Arizona home and promised him we'd try really hard to take the two trips we had planned for later that year. And we did manage an Amtrak trip to Colorado to visit his brother and family. And in early December, we traded our timeshare one final time for a week in Kauai, Hawaii. We were blessed to have dear friends travel with us to support and assist us. Both trips were so gratifying and pleased him immensely. I began studying more about dementia. 
especially the seven stages, and tried to figure out where Raleigh was on the scale. I joined a dementia support group at Friendship Village. There we shared similar questions and struggles as caregivers. I was thankful for the love and support of others experiencing similar heartache. If you haven't been through it, you just can't truly understand. Raleigh became more frustrated knowing what he wanted to say but not being able to get the words out. We shared many tears and life became lonelier as our social life became non-existent. He had greater difficulty getting out of chairs and off the bed and toilet. Through the support group, I discovered Newell Post Daycare for Memory Care. It was a godsend. I could drop him off for a couple hours occasionally or as the illness progressed all day a few times weekly. I could get work done, run errands, have coffee with friends, and often just get caught up on sleep. I also attended a six-week caregiver's class that offered information and encouragement. We were taught the importance of planning ahead for the next step, rather than waiting for an emergency situation to crush us. I learned to be more assertive in seeking help from our children and friends. It was hard for me to admit I couldn't do it all alone. So every six to eight weeks, one of the kids stayed with Raleigh or took him to their home while I got away for a couple days. More memory issues developed, confusion, hallucinations, sundowning, and he became incontinent. Yet that Thanksgiving of 2012, I realized how much he still understood. At the worship service, as we walked to the front of the community center to drop a check into a basket, he was determined to walk along with me. He reached into his back pocket, pulled out his wallet, and found two $1 bills to put into the basket as well. What a heartbreaking, bittersweet moment. So too was watching him hold his mother-in-law's hand as she lay dying at age 98 the following month. He couldn't offer her any words of love, but she knew whose hand held hers. Caregiving had become full-time. My questions to God more frequent. What's the plan? How long can I do this? Even with the doors locked and alarms set, he was able to slip out a few times during the night as I or a family member slept nearby. One time my daughter was frantically searching up and down the street before seeing him walking back. He was in his bed clothes, had fallen and boogered up his knee, elbow and face, and said he was looking for his wife. By spring of 2013, my chiropractor advised I needed to get more help. But Raleigh's daughter was determined to take him on one final trip. She escorted him on the honor flight for veterans to Washington, D.C. His son, an editor for The Courier, was able to travel with them. It was a challenge, but worth it. All the smiles he had returning home to the airport and all the excitement he tried to share were incredible. His favorite book became the Shutterfly photo book Julie made of the trip. Praise God for children who loved him so much. I couldn't have done it. Soon Julie and I visited a few nursing homes in the area, and his name was put on wait lists, probably six to eight months for an opening for a dementia resident. I hoped I could handle it that long. 
Although he needed the wheelchair for the honor flight, at home he managed with a walker and didn't always need that. I did have difficulty getting him in and out of the car. At my annual physical in July, my doctor realized how sad, tired, and emotional I had become. I had gained 12 pounds in, in one year due to the stress. She described depression and anti-anxiety meds and told me I needed in-home help or out-of-home placement for Raleigh. But there were no openings. In August, he had a checkup with his primary care doctor who also heard how serious our issues had become. He ordered final exams by both the occupational and physical therapists who had been working with him over the years. I attended a new support group at Nazareth a few days later and listened carefully to what other spouses were doing for their loved ones. We ended the meeting by writing our prayer requests and the leader prayed for each one. Mine read, When is it time to place Raleigh out of the home? Two days later, God firmly responded. The therapist came to our home and evaluated him. The physical therapist put it to me bluntly. You need help. Your health is suffering, and there are safety concerns for Raleigh. It's time for out-of-home placement. I told her he was on a six-month wait list at the local facilities we had visited. No, she emphatically replied. You need to call today. Find a temporary placement somewhere, and then when there's an opening close by, he can be transferred. I finally heard what the professionals were telling me, what God was telling me. In a couple more days after I had digested all this, Jane Galinsky and Jennifer Van Gant came over and helped me call another half-dozen nursing homes in the area. All had waits of three to six months. I was beside myself and exhausted. Now what do I do? But God was still at work. Two days passed, and the Western Home Communities called, wanting to set up an appointment to do an assessment of Raleigh. They came, and he qualified for their Tallman Square Assisted Living Memory Care Unit, located only a mile from our home. And a room would be available in a few weeks. Now the answers were coming almost too fast. He moved over there shortly after Labor Day 2013. God was in control, but I was a mess. The facility was lovely and the care given the best, but I was depressed and felt like a failure. Gradually, we both adjusted. It wasn't easy. I visited daily. I would go in upbeat and cheerful and leave crying and yelling to God. The roller coaster of emotions continued even though I knew he was where he needed to be. By May of 2014, we were told they couldn't care for him much longer in assisted living as it took two to three resident assistants to get him up when he fell and when transferring him from a chair or a bed. An easy lift was needed to assist them. He needed the wheelchair full time. They were waiting for an appropriate room to become available at the Martin Center nursing facility. We were to also told hospice care was the next step. More services could be given by them. August brought his final move. The additional care and hospice help were what he needed, but the waves of anxiety hit me again every time I visited 
his second floor room and seeing the approximately 50 other residents with some form of dementia. He had good care, but I was depressed. I knew the Lord was in control, but I began crying out to him more frequently. How long must this go on? He's suffering. He won't get well. He adjusted to the new room and a roommate, was eating well, but began losing weight. In mid-December, he and then I got the flu as the virus spread throughout the facility. The doctor said he may get over it and he may not, as some days were better than others. Visitors weren't allowed for a few days, so we kept close contact by phone. I visited twice on Thursday the 18th, and he seemed to rally again. He squeezed my hand as I sat with him. His vitals had normalized. He had eaten and drank something earlier and was resting comfortably when I headed to Bettendorf to help my daughter. She had a new baby, plus two older sons. Her husband had started a new job five hours away, and she was trying to show and sell their house. She needed my help. The next evening, Julie called. She was with her dad, reminiscing old family vacations. He had had a rough day and was being given comfort measures and end-of-life meds were prescribed. She put me on speakerphone and I went down the basement. God told me to say goodbye. I repeated over and over how much I loved him and what a wonderful marriage we had had. I told him it was time. God was calling him home to be with Eleanor, his parents, siblings, and other loved ones. I would be sad and miss him, but I would be okay. He was free to go to heaven and be whole again in mind and body. I would see him again in heaven. But I planned to head back to Cedar Falls early the next morning. As I got out of the shower the next morning, the phone rang. It was Julie. The nurse had just called. Her dad had passed peacefully into heaven a few minutes earlier, December 20th, 2014. The two loves of my life, one died during Holy Week, the other a few days before Christmas. I believe God loved them both very much and wanted them whole again with him. There have been new challenges and decisions made this past year and a half. This death is different. No children at home that need me to be strong. But the journey class has reminded me that I am strong and I will continue to choose joy. Nine months ago, I moved into a villa at the Western Home Community, following through on the plan Raleigh and I made several years ago. I'm adjusting well and contemplating what God has in store for me next. I recently turned 70 and want to finish well. I couldn't control many defining moments of my life. They happened, and I had to determine how to respond. I will continue to thank and praise the Lord for stepping into those moments with me. Please pray that I continue to be faithful to his word and available to help and serve others. My life verses are Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Thank you.
Uh, we've said a lot lately at this church that life is two rails, one rail of joy and celebration and one rail of sadness and grief and loss. And this life has had both rails <laughs> in spades, both. Uh, let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Greta and her courage. Thank you for your presence in her life. Thank you for the good gifts that she's enjoyed on one rail. You know, two godly husbands. You know, extended family. Her two girls. All these grandkids. Uh, Father, thank you for the good gifts. And thank you, like she said, you've been present every day during the tough times. Thank you how you helped her walk through the sudden death of Canton. The longer stretched out death of Raleigh. Thank you for those two men and how much they loved you. Thank you for uh, just all the good gifts of her life. And now, Father, for those in the room who were touched by some part of the story, whether it was dementia or a personal relationship with Raleigh or Greta or, you know, adoption, whatever touched them, we pray that you would use it. Use it to make their lives uh, more whole and to draw them to you, please. In Jesus' name, amen.